Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of The Shower Scene. I liked all the movies I saw this week. I didn't love any of them, but I feel like I have three solid recommendations. I'll be talking about Singing Plastics, A Kick-Ass Killer Bee, and An Aspiring Messiah. Let's begin. Mean Girls. Based on the 2017 Broadway musical adaptation of the classic 2000s teen comedy, Mean Girls is directed by Samantha Payne and Arturo Perez Jr. with an updated script by returning screenwriter Tina Fey. You know how this one goes. Katie Heron, played this time by Angry Rice, is a new student at North Shore High after only ever being homeschooled by her mom, Jenna Fisher, in Africa. They move to the States where, for the first time, Katie is exposed to the world of high school. Her first day, she's having a hard time making friends before she's taken in by social outsiders Janice and Damien, played by Ali'i Cravalho and Jaquel Spivey. There isn't a faster take of me reading those names, so I apologize. Katie's new friends introduce her to all the various social cliques at North Shore, and at the top of the pyramid are the Plastics, the trio of high school royalty Gretchen Wieners, Karen Shetty, and above all, Regina George. Gretchen is played by B.B. Wood, Karen is Avantika, and Regina is Renee Rapp. Janice and Damien decide to recruit Katie to infiltrate the Plastics and pose as one of their own in an elaborate scheme to humiliate Regina. A lot of what you remember from the original remains the same. Katie still becomes sucked into her new popular life, Gretchen is still trying to make fetch happen, and Janice is still the worst character. Except they all sing now. What was that? Oh lord, it's the Queen Bee. Regina George! Don't look her in the eye! My name is Regina George. We women have to trust and support each other. You could be really hot if they change, like, everything. I feel a little torn on this one because, if I'm being honest, there's a lot of individual elements here that I think are really, really on point. In some ways, I think it's fair to say that this movie surpasses the original. There are things this movie does a little differently that makes for an interesting twist on the original. There's a lot of exciting and memorable musical moments. But I can't shake this feeling that all of the things that are working in this movie are working in spite of the fact that it's way too soon for this film adaptation to exist. Honestly, if it should ever exist. The original Mean Girls is one of those classic movies where the legacy of the film is mostly carried by a collection of moments. It's not necessarily about a story or a message. When you think Mean Girls, you think Jingle Bell Rock. You think, she doesn't even go here. You think about Glenn Coco. And seeing these things repeated on a stage is one thing, but in another film, even with the addition of the music, I don't know if there's any reason for that to be done. Because watching it, I'm like, alright, I remember that from the other one. Oh, alright, that too. Okay, I guess this is kind of fun. I caught this interview with Tina Fey where she talks about her ambition in developing this remake to avoid repeating too many of the same jokes. Like, she clearly understands the expectation for this movie to hit a few of the same notes to capture some of the essentials of this story and these characters, but in her words, a joke requires some element of the unexpected to work. So she talks about how the goal here was to provide something new, even if it was at the expense of a few classic moments that people might expect from a Mean Girls remake. And the thing is, I believe her when she says that that was something that she wanted for this movie, 
although I don't think she succeeded. And the more I think about this, the more I sympathize with her position. I wouldn't want to write this movie. Like, I feel like the way the process of writing this movie starts is that you sit down to write the script for the new mean girl with that goal in mind. We can keep the important stuff, but otherwise, let's try to put a new spin on things. And so maybe you start by saying, well, it's not Mean Girls if you don't include Stop Trying to Make Fetch Happen, or On Wednesdays We Wear Pink. Also, the October 3rd bit needs to stay. Also, you go Gun Coco, and if we keep that, people will expect and none for Gretchen Wieners, bye. And it wouldn't be Mean Girls without the Mathlete State final scene, and it wouldn't be the Mathlete State final scene without The Limit Does Not Exist and so on and so on and so on. Her hair is full of secrets. Too gay to function. So you agree? You think you're really pretty? You can't sit with us. Everyone getting Katie's name wrong. Katie, will you please tell him his hair looks sexy pushed back? She doesn't even go here. And the entire exchange word for word around that line. Oh, hi, did you want to buy some drugs? Get in, loser. And that's how Regina George died. Like, I could only take so much of this. I felt tired by the end. And like, I also can't really imagine a Mean Girls remake that doesn't hit these beats. It would be kind of weird, and you would definitely feel these iconic moments being avoided at every turn, especially since I'm sure all of this stuff is in the stage production. So that's where I'm just like, when it's a lose-lose situation like that, maybe this movie just can't be made. People like the Broadway show. I feel like it's doing fine as a stage production, and so I don't know if I needed this movie. And that's the elephant in the room here that spoils some of the stuff that's really working. All that said, I do actually recommend that you see this movie. The big asterisk that comes with my recommendation is that I don't think you're going to laugh that much. Most of the bits here are recycled from the original. Yes, every single line that I've quoted in this review are in this movie, and it gets old. And the new jokes, honestly, are not really that funny. I would say that easily there were 30 to 40 minute stretches where I didn't laugh one time. That's a pretty big deal. This is still a comedy. So that's what I'll tell you before you go into this thing. But the main selling point that I think ultimately makes watching this movie worth it is the cast and the musical sequences. I don't know if I like the songs themselves. I have to sit with just the soundtrack, I think, to figure that out. I just don't know if I like this style of Broadway pop of the Heathers, Dear Evan Hansen variety. It's hard to explain, but the kids like it. But the songs don't really matter to me because the real event here is the insane, high-energy, extremely impressive production of these musical sequences and the talent that brings them to life. Because I was constantly amazed at how this film moves. There's no other way to say it. It's not just the sets and the choreography, which is all great, but the way the camera is so involved in that choreography. Like, this is definitely not one of those cases of adapting a hit Broadway show with the point-and-shoot method that would make this movie feel entirely pointless. All around, this is a good movie musical. Again, the stuff they do with the movement of the camera and the editing here makes this experience something very different from what you could do on the stage, and it really serves to give this movie a pulse. And then there's the cast. I love how many names I had to Google to write this review. Most of the cast here are either unknowns to me or people I might have seen in one or two things, but I couldn't tell you their name. This is just such a good example of casting talent before fame, and that talent is really the main thing that keeps me from dismissing this movie as another unnecessary remake. Renee Rapp is a star. She plays Regina a little less prissy and more low-key than Rachel McAdams did it. Like, this version isn't really going for, like, a princess diva type. She's just cool. Like, if I was in high school, I would look up to this person, not because she's hot and rich, but because she has that type of personality that you just have this need to get approval from. She commands every scene she's in just as well as McAdams did, and when it's time for her to sing, forget it. She has you in a chokehold. Someone else I want to mention is Avantika, who plays Karen as equal parts dumb and just bizarre in this version that's always just so fascinating to watch. She has this big, vacant stare 
like the chicken in Moana that kills me. And then also her singing and dancing moments are great. I've never heard of this actress and she was awesome. So yeah, all around, everyone here is breathing life into this movie even where the material is stale. Does this movie work better as a compilation of music videos? Maybe, but then you'd miss some of the nuances from these performances when they're not singing, so I am going to recommend this. The Mean Girls remake is somewhat held back by its obligations to fans of the original, but with talent like this involved, the limit does not exist. The Beekeeper. Directed by David Ayer, The Beekeeper stars Jason Statham as Adam Clay, a stoic, introverted man who befriends a kind elderly woman, Eloise, played by Felicia Rashad, who's letting Adam rent her garage for him to practice his hobby of beekeeping, for which he is extremely appreciative. A tragedy strikes when Eloise falls victim to a fishing scam that drains all of her savings, and left with nothing, she commits suicide. Adam is first on the scene, along with Eloise's FBI agent daughter Verona, played by Emmy Raver Lantman, and Adam is scarred by the incident and seeks the powerful people responsible for this tragedy after the law fails to bring them to justice. And this scam organization will find that they messed with the wrong beekeeper, which it turns out is a code name for an underground organization of highly trained killers with a reputation for seeing their personal vendettas to their final bloody conclusion. He is also an actual beekeeper though, which I think might just be a coincidence. Mrs. Parker and I were friends. She was like family. She was the only person who ever took care of me. I just got a message saying that there's a problem with my computer. Yes, ma'am, we got this. Yesterday she shot herself. This is private property. Do you know what they do here? Scamming the weakest in our society? Buddy, I'm counting to three. One, two, three. There, I did it for you. Yeah, this movie isn't bad. I've seen worse. This is an action revenge flick that obviously took a lot of notes off the John Wick movies, and this is a weird compliment, but I feel like it took good notes. Like, this is not as good as those movies, but at the very least, it does seem to understand why those movies work. It lost me a little near the end, but this movie manages to keep a standard of competency that does place it in a separate camp from other forgettable action movies going for the same thing. Like, in a very John Wick fashion, this story unlocks this crazy criminal underworld with its own rules and own ways of doing things. We're shown that some of the highest tiers of the government have seemingly all heard of beekeepers and know there's something to be feared, and that's always fun. And for me, the thing that was constantly keeping my attention was how surprisingly legit this cast was. Jason Statham is as boring as he usually is. He's probably my least favorite action star working today, and one day that might change if just one time he makes a different facial expression. But a lot of the interactions that Statham has throughout these different tiers of his revenge mission are elevated by the other actors, who I just like to see and stuff. Like, the CIA plays a small part in this story, and they help to establish the reputation of the beekeepers. They've all heard of them, and at a certain point, they just decide to step out of the way because he's too dangerous. And this might otherwise have been a sort of forgettable part of the story, but this subplot gets the legitimacy of having Minnie Driver playing the CIA director. It's a bit role, but it's memorable because she's memorable. And I feel the same way about Josh Hutcherson as the douchey guy at the top of this scam organization, and especially about Jeremy Irons as the head of security for Hutcherson's tech company, who knows all about the beekeepers and is there to make this oblivious guy aware of the trouble he's in. Legitimizing is the best word that I have for what they bring to this. And then the standout performance here is Emmy Raver Lantman as the scam victim's daughter. She's really good as an agent of the law who's assigned to stop the beekeeper, but she's conflicted because she's so close to the cause he's killing for and he's getting her family 
justice that the law isn't. So close that I think in real life she probably wouldn't be allowed to be on this case, but whatever, it adds some drama. And for all the personality that Statham lacks, she really brings it. My only side note when it comes to the casting here is that Felicia Rashad is a very curious choice as an oblivious elder who's duped by this scam and then despairs so much that she kills herself. I'm not saying these things can't happen to smart people, but Rashad's face kind of has this permanent knowing expression, like she's looking through everything constantly. And if I'm telling a story about the kinds of targets these scammers go after, that's not necessarily the actor that I would choose to represent that. But on that note, I do like how the revenge aspect here is against such a pressing real-world problem that isn't just exclusive to this guy at the center of this movie. Like, this exact same story easily could have been told about a guy wanting revenge against the people who killed his girlfriend, or his children, or his dog. But instead, they include something that's actually going on in the world that probably affected many of us in one way or another, so I like that. And if you've ever seen footage of how these places run in real life, you know that it's a lot more boring and standard than how this movie plays it. These scams are usually run in office spaces that look totally normal until you listen to what the people are saying on the phones. And in this movie, they're like nightclubs with cubicles. The scammers are surrounded by this big colorful display of lights and loud music. And at the center is a guy in a nice suit hyping them up like they're in a Peloton class. It's not real life, but again, whatever. Those scenes aren't fun if they take place in an office. So my only real complaints are that the elaborate story kind of lost my attention by the end. And then there's Jason Statham. This movie in part thrives on the fact that his character seems to disappear sometimes for many minutes, which is weird, but that's usually when the movie starts to get exciting. But the fight scenes are always kind of watered down by Statham's presence, or lack thereof. I've made a few comparisons to John Wick, mostly to this movie's favor, but one major difference between John Wick and Statham's character is that John Wick is allowed to lose a fight here and there. In the past, it's been reported that Jason Statham, along with Vin Diesel and Dwayne Johnson, have had it in their contracts that they can't lose fights in their movies, and the extent that their characters can be beaten up are limited, which is the lamest thing I've ever heard, and I've seen how movies starring all three of them suffer from this deeply embarrassing rule. And here, as is often the case in bad action movies, Statham's fights start to get boring because he he never misses a shot, almost never gets a direct blow to the face, and almost always comes out on top. You're never worried about him being in danger, and he has this arrogant, cocksure expression on his face that just makes me root for him to lose. And he should have, by the way, many times. It's a trope that I'm not necessarily mad at, that the hero encounters a room full of opponents, all presumably carrying guns and tasers, and when it's time to take all of them on, they all patiently wait their turns and go after him in hand-to-hand -hand combat one by one. Which is dumb, but I'm not thinking, this is dumb when it happens in Kill Bill or say John Wick, for instance, because I like the heroes in those movies. Anyway, again, he's not my favorite, but he's also not the focus enough in this movie to ruin it for me. Also, the fight choreography is cool. So overall, this is a perfectly fine B-movie in more ways than one. Book of Clarence. The year is 33 AD. Clarence, played by Lakeith Stanfield, is a poor petty criminal in Jerusalem with big ambitions to make something of himself. But he's held back by his crushing debts owed to loan sharks and his feelings of inadequacy compared to his twin brother Thomas, also played by Stanfield, who's made a name for himself as one of the twelve apostles of the coveted Messiah and Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, played by Nicholas Pinnock. Clarence decides that he's done feeling like a nobody, and so at first he embarks on a wild scheme to become the 13th Apostle of Jesus Christ, hoping for the other apostles to help him with his debt, and as a bonus, maybe achieve the recognition that he's been missing. Clarence, you are guilty of the crime fraud for your own ill-gotten gains. If you give me Jesus of Nazareth, I will let you walk free, and I will give you power, wealth. You'll be somebody. Young boy, be 
I die before I give him up to Rome. Then death it is. Written and directed by James Samuel, The Book of Clarence is the kind of movie that feels exciting based on how hard it is to put it in a box. If you heard the summary and you're like me, you might think this movie is going for something similar to Monty Python's Life of Brian, which it kind of is, but there's an important twist on that concept happening here that makes this movie a very different experience. At times, especially in the early scenes, this movie reads like a Jerusalem-set Judd Apatow comedy with the underdog protagonist and his big dreams and the shenanigans that follow. And that's kind of the box that I was putting it in for a while. But the big change this movie continues to make to that routine is that it keeps coming back to these moments of total sincerity and heart. The basic idea of this movie, like there are obvious traces of Life of Brian, but if I were to actually try to pitch this movie to someone, it would be the story of Jesus's crucifixion getting the wicked treatment, as in the Broadway show. Which sounds odd, but that is what this movie is doing. Everything you thought you knew about this story is wrong, but it demonstrates why it's all thought of that way while showing the true story in quotes behind the scenes, which invites good jokes and an interesting perspective on a well-known story, but there's also a very sincere story about faith happening here. And the realization that really made me appreciate what this movie is doing is that I think this is one of the only successful movies about faith I've ever seen. Movies tackling themes of religious faith are notoriously bad and unable to deliver their desired message, and the problem isn't complicated. As a viewer with no religious beliefs, I'm not going to be swayed by a movie depicting a character having a very personal experience with discovering faith, all with the knowledge that this is a film being written by someone who can control everything that's happening in the universe of the story, and they can create miracles and revelatory experiences where it's convenient. And there are miracles happening here that the movie asks you to accept, but the reason I mostly accept this movie's message is that this is a story that depicts the power of faith through a fake-it-till-you-make-it narrative. Again, I'm not religious, but my perspective on religion is that if you use it as an excuse to be a dick, then it's bad but if you use it as an excuse to do good, then it's good. This is a movie where the main character does good things for the wrong reason sometimes, and later he lies about being a messiah for personal gain, but the pursuit of proving himself to be a great person turns him into this great person. And I think, like, that's the only way that I can accept a story about the power of Jesus, so points for that. There are some inconsistencies with this character. At times, here he switches from being totally selfish to being someone with these profound values and things to teach in the span of, like, seconds that I didn't always buy. But on the whole, the message is solid, and again, we have all these pockets of sincerity here. The production and the costumes are really great at Passion of the Christ caliber. There's no winking at the audience in the way this world is created. And also, spoilers, there is a crucifixion scene here, and it's actually quite violent, and you're actually made to experience the depth of the sacrifice he's making. One complaint is that no spoilers, by far the best joke in this movie is directly intertwined with said crucifixion. And it is very funny, so fine, but I almost wonder if the joke should have stopped by this point to allow us to sit with the serious message it's trying to finish on. Otherwise, this movie is definitely worth watching just as a unique experience. I don't think this or any movie has the ability to convert anyone, but I think if you believe, it'll make you feel seen, and if you don't, there's still a ton to enjoy. Peace be unto you. Okay, that's what I saw this week. I've been trying to think of like some kind of rating system because I feel like people might want that. It just feels dumb on a podcast to explain everything that I thought about the movie and then give a number or stars that just corresponds to what you already know, I think. I guess I could rate them on Instagram beforehand. I don't know. I'll try something new this week. Anyway, come back next week for more reviews. But until then, goodbye. I also want a new outro.